We had just seen Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida. And uh, he did this in two stages. The only time that he ever uh, did a miracle in two stages. The first time the man said he saw men like trees walking. And then Jesus prayed for him again. Put his hands on his eyes. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. So in verse 27, it says, following this event, it says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist. But some of them said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. He's been doing this. He did it with the, the blind man telling them not to tell people. Uh, was there yet the right time for things to come to a head and for him to be... His hour had not yet come, as John would put it. Well, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi is north of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles beyond a smaller lake named Hula. Uh, Mount Hermon is in this area. And we see, you know, after this... End of this chapter, we find yeah the dew of Hermon. Uh, we see the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's something we'll talk about in the future. The journey from the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi involves an increase of elevation of about 1,850 feet, and that's you know, it's not that much over that kind of a distance, but that's not including you know the mountains themselves. Caesarea Philippi is up in that area. There was another Caesarea, which is on the shore of the Mediterranean. That's one that Paul was sent to when he was arrested, and, and they were getting him away from the people that wanted to kill him. Uh, and so one of the emperors named this one after this area after Caesar also, but they had to come up with a name to differentiate it, so it's uh, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus leaves the area of Israel proper again and goes out to this area. So he and his disciples are going to the towns in the area and uh, Jesus asks a question. We've seen that they had trouble understanding a few things. Jesus tests their understanding again, this time concerning his identity. And so he asks, who do men say that I am? We see there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. There's a lot of ignorance about who Jesus is. Many knew of him, but did not really know who he is. We could say was, but he still is. As the blind man who Jesus healed immediately before, uh, he presented this question. The disciples saw Jesus, but they did not see him clearly. Their vision of him was a bit blurry. They did not perceive his true identity. They saw evidence of it. They encountered hints, powerful hints of it. Hints, it's not really the right word. It's more like heat from a blast furnace or hurricane force winds, but they weren't making the impact that you would expect those things to have. The spiritual state of their hearts kept them from full perception. He asked them you know, earlier in the chapter, you have eyes and you still don't see. You have ears and you don't hear. How is your heart still hard? Jesus pointed out to them their hearts were spiritually dull. Their eyes of their understanding were unfocused. Their ears were a bit hard of hearing. 
the spiritual reality of who they were interacting with was difficult for them to grasp. And I, I think we can understand that, relate to that, if we, if we know who Jesus uh, is and coming in the flesh. It'd be a difficult reality to grapple with. It's a reality that the nature of man does not readily receive. So these men have seen Jesus heal all manners of diseases. He's cast out evil spirits. He's multiplied, that is, created material resources, bread and fish. He's calmed violent storms upon the sea. He's walked on the surface of the sea. And he's even raised a young girl from the dead. And when they saw and experienced these things, they feared and wondered. Back in Mark chapter 4, verses 40 and 41, after he had come to them, Walking on the water, it says, he said to them, why are you so so fearful? Or this may have been when he's asleep in the boat. How is it that you have no faith? Not just faith concerning the storm, but how is it you have no faith about who I am? And I'm with you here. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? This was when he was asleep up in the bow of the boat. And they were like, ah, don't you care that we're going to perish? He said, why is your faith so small? Jesus tells him, let's go to the other side. He gets in the boat with them to go over there. But somehow they're not going to make it. Right? And we can understand the fear and the, and the lack of confidence, the lack of faith. Here we are in the middle of this disastrous situation. When all of this, all these things, they did not yet understand the profound personality of the one that they called Master. His glory was veiled in human flesh. Otherwise, they could not have abode his presence among them. This, this spiritual reality was being pressed upon their hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit. And their understanding will begin to grow. Jesus is going to nudge them in the right direction. And this is the right time. And so he asked these questions. Within the circles that the apostles were exposed to, there were a lot of contradictory opinions about Jesus. Who, who do men say that I am? And he's been among them for years now. It's taken time to take their spiritual temperature, or it's time now to take their spiritual temperature, or maybe their pulse, see if there's any spiritual life there. Is there a heartbeat? He asked them first for the opinions of the surrounding culture. Some say John the Baptist. This is probably the most fanciful of the options offered. You recall that Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. Herod was a very, had a very guilty conscience about the execution of John. But those who knew the truth realized this could not be possible. Jesus and John were alive at the same time. So one could not be the other raised from the dead. John baptized Jesus, and John identified him at that time, John 1.36, as he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And earlier on, he had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist said, Some said Elijah. Now, this is incorrect, but it's more reasonable. It had a possible scriptural basis. It's in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the very last verses of the Old Testament. And then God was silent for 400 years. This is the last thing he said before then. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. 
So they understood, many understood that John the Baptist was going to come before the return, well, before the coming of the Lord, was their understanding. Now, Jesus is not Elijah, but it does say that Elijah must come first. But this is before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, that is, the time frame surrounding the second coming. The first coming was keeping in line with Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, where Isaiah speaks and says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You recall this is what John the Baptist answered when they asked him, Who are you? And they asked him, Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he said, No, I'm not any of those things. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. It says, Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. That refers to the coming kingdom age. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, uh, John himself in his gospel, John 1.14 says, we be, he be, the, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So, uh, John the Baptist uh, says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. But these verses, uh, Isaiah 40, were fulfilled by John the Baptist, at least in regard to the first coming of Jesus, who we are told by Gabriel speaking to his father Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, uh, 15 through 17, speaking of John the Baptist, he says, uh, Gabriel says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Uh, Jesus says there was no greater man among the prophets than John the Baptist. Here he is, right? Still in his mother's womb. And remember when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, the baby leaped in her womb. John the Baptist. Oh, the Messiah is here. Jesus is here. And he got all excited, even though he was was in the womb. And he says in verse 16, he'll turn away. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is you know, this one who's to come. He will also go before him, and he says, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, quoting from Malachi, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist came. He was fulfilling the role of Elijah in the first coming. So he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. What was the spirit and power of Elijah? The Holy Spirit. That was the spirit and power. And then uh, some said, well, they're saying you might be one of the prophets. You know, over in Matthew's account, some specified Jeremiah or one of the prophets, perhaps because Jesus wept at times and Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. But no, Jesus was not an Old Testament prophet returned. This was a pagan and a cult belief, not a scriptural one. The scriptures teach the opposite of reincarnation. In Hebrews 9.27, we're told, it's a, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. It's only one death that men take. They don't come back and live again and die again. Uh, we live once, and then we're subject to the judgment of God. There were some who questioned on another occasion whether he was the prophet, 
the priests and Levites had asked John the Baptist if he were the prophet. And this is the one spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Moses says to the people there, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. People were there around the mountain, and it was so tremendous that they were like, I don't want to see this anymore. And the Lord said to me, what they've spoken is good. And so Moses became the representative of God to them. And he says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. This is that prophet. And Moses said, the Lord's going to raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. Well, this is identical with the Messiah. And we see Jesus doing this and being this person. But the Jews were confused about it. They didn't know, well, is this another guy? Is this not not the Messiah? We see in uh, John 12, uh, 44 through 50, you know, this prophet's words will be authoritative. They must be accepted. And Jesus exhibits the attributes of this prophet. In John 12:44, Jesus cries out and he says, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words, which were the Father's words, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day, just as we read about in Deuteronomy 18. Anybody who doesn't hear these words will be held accountable. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So who is Jesus? All in all, there was a lot of ignorance and confusion about the identity of Jesus in his own day. In our day, there's a lot of confusion and ignorance about who Jesus is. You know, uh, if you've talked to anybody who's in Islam, who's a Muslim, they believe in Jesus, Esau. But that Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. He, you know, that Jesus never had a, f- a father who was God. They say God has no father. Or, I'm sorry, God has no son. He's not a father and he has no son. So, you know, there's confusion about who Jesus is. In, in Islam, he's just a prophet. He's not anything, well, he's not even as great as Muhammad, actually. Uh, in Judaism, they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Some of them have come to believe in him, um, called completed Jews, but most of them do not believe that Jesus. They, they, uh, some of them believe Jesus is the Messiah for the Gentiles, but not for the Jews. You know, the Messiah for the Jews is yet to come, and they're looking for Elijah to be the forerunner. In Buddhism, you know, he's just another among many who might have been reached nirvana or been uh, 
reach that state of perfection. You know, Hinduism, 360 gods. You know, you talk to a Hindu, unless you're really clear about what you're explaining, you t- talk to them about receiving Jesus, and they're like, oh, sure. We'll just add him to the other millions of gods, you know. But yeah, you can't have too many gods, right? You want to have all your bases covered like the people in Athens had that altar to the unknown God, you know, just to cover everything. You know, we think we got all these other gods covered, but we don't know about this guy, so we better we better do something here. There's an interesting story behind that, but we'll wait till we get to that to, to deal with it. Uh, Mormonism. Their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, he's our spirit brother. We're all the same as him, and he... Uh, through his life, got to the point where he could be a god, and we can do the same thing. That's part of their teaching and their doctrine. The Watchtower says, well, he wasn't God, he was just a man. The way is similar. You know, he's the son of God, but he's not God. Many people will confess him as the son of God, but they say, no, he's not deity. He's not God come in the flesh. So we see all these different opinions about him. You know, the Unification Church, remember Reverend Moon? He said he failed in his mission. He was supposed to get married and have kids and have a perfect family, and he failed in that. So uh, Reverend Moon came to do that, you know. And, and we've had enough time now to see that he did not produce the perfect family. So uh, he failed in his mission. So people are saying many different things about him even today, but there's only one reliable source for true information about Jesus. The truth is available, but it takes some effort to come to a knowledge of the truth. The Lord draws all men to himself. He promised that he would do that. Men respond by either being drawn by him or resisting and not being drawn. Isaiah 55, 6, we're told, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then Hebrews 11, 6, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's got to be a diligent search if we're going to understand, come to a knowledge of the truth. So people will only understand who Jesus is by accepting the record that God has given us of him in the Bible. The more we know of Jesus from the Bible, the more we will have accurate knowledge of who he is. Our spiritual vision will be clarified. It will be unfuzzied. The less we know of Jesus from the Bible, the less we will understand who he is. There's no sadder state than to to be in than to not know who Jesus is. Or to think you know who he is, but you do not know. And there's only this one reliable and complete source that tells us who Jesus is. We talked last week about seeing things through the lens that God provides, the spiritual lens, and that's the scriptures before us. gives us clear vision and clear understanding of God's truth. Partial knowledge can be dangerous and lead to erroneous beliefs or conclusions. There was a lot of partial, incomplete knowledge about the Messiah in Jesus' day. Some knew from Scripture that he would be born in Bethlehem. Others believed that no one would know where he was from. Some knew from Scripture that the Messiah would suffer, die, and be resurrected. 
Some knew from Scripture that the Messiah would rule and reign forever upon the throne of David. Most were unable to reconcile these two prophetic aspects of Messiah. People could rightly claim either or both, but most did not understand the two comings. Many believed in two messiahs due to the seeming contradiction of the different prophecies. So there's all this confusion about who Jesus is. Who do men say that I am? And then Jesus asked the question that he wanted to ask them. It's the most important question for any person to answer. And every person must answer this question, perhaps more than once. If I had been asked at one point in my life, I'm not even sure what my answer would have been. Probably a very confused or confusing statement, but certainly not the answer that Peter gives here. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Eternal life hinges at first upon the correct answer to this question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? The impetuous apostle Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, or the Hebrew is Messiah, which means the anointed of God. This is the one they were looking for. He was to come. He was to throw off the yoke of Rome. He was to set up the kingdom and Israel would be over all the earth and they would be the head and not the tail, etc. It wasn't time for that yet. That's coming. It's coming. The others... The other disciples may have been too inhibited to offer an answer. Whatever we say, we'll probably be in trouble again. I think I'll just be quiet and see what Peter says. Because Peter was always the one that would speak up. The idea that Jesus may be the Messiah is not something new to these men. At least some of the disciples have been thinking this since they first met Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 40 and 41... A couple of guys who heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God. They heard John speak and they followed him. And one of those was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. So the the Greek uh, word for that. In uh, John chapter 1 and verse 45, later, just a little later in the chapter, Philip finds Nathanael and he says to him, We've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you remember the response of Nathanael. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And then in John 1.49, Nathanael, after he's brought to Jesus and Jesus says, Oh, I saw you under the fig tree. You know, Probably a long ways away. And he says to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. He just skips over the Messiah part. You know, the King of Israel. So they had uh, inklings. But their opinions probably changed from time to time, depending on what was happening at the time. But they were committed to being discipled by Jesus. I think they were confident that if they hung in there with him, all things would become clear or at least 11 of them were confident of that. It is by faith in Him and a commitment to abiding in Him that all things will become clear. In the parallel passage in Matthew, he gives us a more extended statement by Peter and a response from Jesus. This is in Matthew 16, uh, 16 through 19. Peter answers and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is his full complete response. You're the son of the living God. This is who he identifies the Messiah 
to me. And Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Also, I... I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this involves a heavenly revelation. Jesus says, my Father has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. You know, nobody else could tell you this. For you to believe it, you know, real, it had to be the Lord that revealed it. Uh, we see in First Corinthians twelve three where Paul is uh, instructing the church about speaking in tongues. He says, "Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit." So there were those apparently if there would be a tongue spoken, and the interpretation would be Jesus is accursed. Well. Time to cast some demons out, you know, <laughs> at that point. Because no one speaking by the Spirit of God can can say that and, you know, mean it. Obviously, you can say the words, I just said them, right? And no one can say that Jesus is Lord. Again, it's not just saying the words, but it's saying the words and understanding them, knowing them to be true. You can only say that by the Holy Spirit. So anybody who believes in Jesus in this way has had the same revelation that Peter received. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus said, All things have been delivered to, be, to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So very much what Jesus said in uh, John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So it's important that we be able to answer the question, who do you say that I am accurately with the same answer Peter gives with understanding in our hearts. He speaks to him of being the rock. He gives him the keys. He tells him he can bind and loose. And later on that is extended to the other apostles, the other disciples. Well, Peter, as we've discussed, he's the major source of Mark's gospel. And so we don't get the full statement nor the commendation of Jesus to Peter. We do, however, still get the rebuke that soon comes and that we will see. Peter, I'm sorry. um, We see in this the great continuing humility of Peter after his restoration to Jesus. He's not going to give, allow Mark to record information that would exalt Peter in this way. So what's your answer to the question, who do you say that I am? I trust that all of you would echo Peter's words. This is the only answer that is in touch with reality. It's the only answer that leads to life. The confession of Jesus as the Messiah covers it when we realize what is prophesied of the Messiah But the fuller answer recorded in Matthew, Son of the Living God, solidifies the understanding that this one is more than a mere man. And we'll just read a few uh, passages from the Old and New Testaments and see who it identifies this Messiah to be. And you're no doubt familiar with all these. Uh, But we'll just run through them, like Genesis 3.15. 
Uh, God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see this one coming who would be identified as the seed of woman. There would be no man involved. As we see in Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 were promised, and this is our great Christmas you know, verse. And uh, this last year I listened to Handel's Messiah all the way through for the first time, you know, the traditional version. Wow. <laughs> and this is part of it, of course, repeated over and again and crescendos. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end yet to come upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see this son is coming and he would be called mighty God. Micah 5.2, a prophecy, he says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This one who's going to come, he's going to be ruling. He's been around forever. Moving on, some of the New Testament passages. John chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So here we have the Creator God. John 1, 14, as we read, or as I quoted, uh, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So that's identifying this Word from verse 1 with Jesus who came in the flesh. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tells us, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son whom He has appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the worlds. He being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power when He had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, uh, he's the express image of his person. Uh, One translation states that as the exact representation of his being. And that's, both are good. Uh, Colossians 1, 15-17, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He's before everything. He created everything. Everything holds together. Because of him. Colossians 2 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
In Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial, and they're wanting him to uh, tell them who he is uh, so they can kill him, to make his claim clear. Uh, Jesus says in verse 63 of Matthew 26, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God, which according to their law, they were, you, you were required to answer. No fifth amendment here. He says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, these guys knew their Bible. They didn't understand it correctly, but they knew their Bible, and they knew he was quoting from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. And they were like, oh, we don't need to hear any more. We got him dead to rights. He's just telling them the truth. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, John seeing Jesus clearly at this point, and he's telling everybody, he came and, and we we touched him and, and we saw him. And when it says we looked upon, this is a different word. It's like gazing upon. You know, the first time we're seeing him and now we're just spellbound in, in seeing him. And we heard him, all the things that he said. John fourteen nine, Jesus says, uh, Philip, Philip wants to know, he says, just, Show me the Father, or show us the Father. We'll be satisfied, you know. And Jesus says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? He's the exact representation of his person. John 8:58. Jesus says to them, and he's been discussing with the Pharisees and rebuking them, and uh, he's telling them, that Abraham saw his day, he rejoiced to see his day, and they said, you're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham have seen your day? And Jesus says to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that I am is the uh, the name which God gave to Moses. Moses said, who am I going to say sent me? He says, tell him I am that I am has sent you. And the Old Testament's translated into Greek. They use this phrase that Jesus used. And then John chapter 5, 
verse 22, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, Jesus should receive the same honor as God. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So anybody that doesn't give Jesus the same honor as the Father, they're not honoring the Father who sent him. So it's just a sampling of uh, verses that very clearly tell us, state for us, who Jesus is, what his identity and his nature is. And there are many others. I mean, it's hard to read a page in the New Testament without either a direct or indirect reference to Jesus. Uh, some way similar to the things that we read here. So then in verse 31, it says, He began to teach them then that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So he starts introducing the disciples to the truth that the Messiah will not rule and reign at this time, but will instead be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes, the very ones who should know above all others the truth about the Messiah and who should give testimony to the people concerning him and yet they were the ones who rejected him. He would be killed and be raised from the dead three days later. And we see this you know, prophesied throughout the scriptures as well. In Psalm 22, we see a picture of the crucifixion. Uh, even uh, passages there that are quoted in the New Testament as being fulfilled, such as they cast lots for his clothing. Uh, and Jesus speaking from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is the first... Uh, verse of that. But you get to the end of Psalm 22 and you find that this one who was killed is alive again. Uh, Psalm 16, which we sing of, that he will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. You know, we see again the death of this Holy One and then his coming back and being alive again. Genesis 22, which gives us a picture. Abraham and Isaac gives us a picture of the uh, coming and prophesied to us from this this event that God arranged and took place, the coming of this one who would be uh, crucified for the sins of the world and then raised again after three days. Uh, the book of Jonah, which Jesus pointed to and said, I'm not going to give you any sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. He was three days and three nights in the, bury, the belly of the great fish. I'll be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. But then he's going to come forth, spring forth. In Isaiah 53, we studied not too long ago on Thursdays, we see again this one who would come. He would bear our iniquities, take all of our sin upon himself, uh, and die. that, That penalty of death. And then again at the end of that chapter, we see him being raised from the dead and brought forth. Uh, just a few things that Jesus could have shared f- with them from the Old Testament, uh, supporting the things that he said. So he speaks to the, this to them, and then Peter, probably emboldened by the praise, you know, that uh, my Father has revealed this to you, you're the rock, buddy. 
uh, he takes Jesus aside. You don't know, want to rebuke the Messiah right in front of everybody. You know, you give him a little grace. You just take him over where everybody's not watching, and maybe say something like, "I can see that you're discouraged, Jesus. I know most people don't recognize who you are, like I do. Don't take it so hard. Don't be so negative. Things can still work out. Don't look on the dark side of things, Lord. Be optimistic. A sunny lookout, out, a sunny outlook." That's the key. And I know about keys. What he actually said was, Lord, this will never happen to you. Which means, it literally means spare yourself. Have mercy on yourself, Lord. This isn't gonna, you know, because they're still looking forward to that one who's coming to set up and establish the kingdom. So Peter seeks to correct Jesus' way of thinking. In Matthew 16:22, we are told that uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, and uh, says that also here in Mark. Far, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Um, this rebuke was probably brought up often through the years later on among the disciples and the apostles. Like, hey, Peter, remember that time you corrected Jesus? <laughs> Peter sees who Jesus is, but he does not yet see Jesus clearly. His focus is still a little bit blurry, like the man healed of blindness earlier in the chapter. Jesus wants us to see him clearly, distinctly, no shadows or misconceptions. Admittedly, this takes time. But we cannot see Jesus in clarity apart from his revelation of himself in the Scriptures. It's the only and complete image of him. And we neglect it at the risk of not having a clear vision of Jesus. And so Jesus turns around and looks at the other uh, disciples. This is a detail here in Mark. We don't get it in the other Gospels. He's the only one who tells us this, and this probably came from Peter. Well, you know, after I said that to Jesus, he turned around and looked at those guys, and then he said the strangest thing to me. So he, he turns around, looks at his disciples, and, and uh, what's he thinking? What's Jesus thinking at this point? Are these guys worth it? I don't think he was thinking that. Or get a load of this, guys. You know, look at Peter. You know, not that either. I think he was refocusing upon his mission. So why am I here? You know, I'm being tempted here, and that's what this was a temptation uh, from Satan. That's why he addresses, he's not calling Peter Satan, but this is where the the uh, temptations coming from. He gets a revelation from God. Moments later, he's thinking like a man and like the enemy. Uh, and so he's looking at why he can't, refocusing upon his mission. You know, there's a temptation. Why, why, why am I here? What am I here for? For these guys. This uh, small sample of the overall harvest, that's the reason he has come. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul writes and says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And this, is the, this was the purpose, the major purpose for which Jesus came, was to save sinners. And so, to save sinners, he has to be rejected, be killed, be resurrected on the third day. But that... Rejection and killing are looming large at this point. And 
there was a temptation from Satan early on in the ministry of Jesus when he was out in the wilderness. And Satan said, if you bow down, I'll give you all these kingdoms that are mine to give. And, and, all and so there's this temptation, the glory, the throne without the cross. You don't have to go through all that suffering and stuff. Just do this and you'll be fine. And so, you know, Peter is echoing this. He's saying, oh, this, this, is, this will never happen to you, Lord. But Jesus knows this is why I am here. And we'll see him reiterating that. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Uh, um, uh, Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So he's paying the price instead of, that's what this phrase means, this ransom for all. And it's similar to that song Andy sings at sometimes. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And he did that to redeem us, to buy us back to himself. In Mark chapter 10, verses 44 and 45, Jesus says, Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. They were all arguing over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And he says, You want to be first? Oh, that's cool. Well, you've got to be the slave of all if you want to be that. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If he came in that way, he's saying, you're following me? You come in that way too. Not to be served, but to serve and give your life up for others. That's later on in the chapter. We won't get to it today. Why did he come? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. So he looked beyond the cross to the other side as he would turn and looked at his disciples. Uh, this joy that was set before him, he could see the outcome of this path that he was to take. In Hebrews chapter 2, he's speaking prophecy in Psalm 8 that Jesus uh, is also fulfilling, will, will fulfill even. In verse 9, he says, uh, this psalm says he's putting everything in subjection under his feet. Verse 9, he says, we see Jesus, we don't see that, but we see Jesus who has made, was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So this is for the purpose of bringing uh, many sons to glory, verse 10. It was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So this is his purpose. He's come to bring many sons to glory and you are his sons if you know him this morning and you're going to be brought to glory. That's a guarantee for those that are His, for those that know Him. He will accomplish it. He will need not leave any promise unfulfilled. And so He looks at His other disciples and sees this. In John 3.17, we're told, God did not send His 
his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There's a song by, uh, I had to look it up, it's originally by Dottie Rambo. I, I uh, heard it in the, the version that I thought was by Andre Crouch. I heard Andre Crouch do it in the early years of his song ministry. And it, it says, He looked beyond my faults and saw my need. And so Dottie gets credit for that. That song it's a, it's a great song if you want to look it up and, and hear the whole thing. Um, I'm not sure of the name of it, actually. If anybody knows. But you'll be able to find it. I found it just with this lyric, and it came up. So, but uh, I thought Andre would get credit for it. You know, he did a great version of it. It was, it was really good. So uh, Jesus looks at his other disciples, and then he turns around and rebukes Peter for presenting to him the same temptation Satan brought in the wilderness—the temptation to avoid the cross and go straight to the crown. So shortly after being told by Jesus that he had received a revelation from God the Father, Jesus tells Peter that he is being used by Satan to try and divert Jesus from the Father's call and plan. Satan always tries to discourage us from wholly obeying God. Someone has said he tempts us to take an easy path to the throne. Now there is that scripture that those who overcome can sit down with me and my father on our throne. You know, there's going to be a glorification that takes place. Um, and we will rule and reign with Jesus, we're told. A man named Kelly comments on this, and he says, What was it that so roused our Lord that he would rebuke Peter in such a way? The very snare to which we are all so exposed, the desire of saving self. And Jesus will talk about this in the rest of the chapter, but again, we won't get there today. The desire of saving self. The preference of an easy path to the cross. It is not true that we naturally, or I'm sorry, it is true that we naturally like to escape trial, shame, and rejection, that we shrink from the suffering which doing God's will in such a world as this must ever entail that we prefer to have a quiet, respectable path in the earth. In short, the best of both worlds. How easily one may be ensnared into this. Peter could not understand why the Messiah should go through all this path of sorrow. Had we been there, we might have said or thought yet worse. Peter's remonstrance was not without strong human affection. He heartily loved the Savior too. But unknown to himself, there was the unjudged spirit of the world. So we must remember that at this time, none of the disciples understood what was prophesied or what was to come, nor were they yet indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus will tell them a couple more times uh, that this is going to happen. He's going to go be rejected. You know, we'll see it as we go through Mark here. Uh, but they don't get it. And... Uh, at one point, he tells them, it might be the, after the mount, uh, he tells them, you know, the Son of Man is going to be raised from the dead. And they discuss among themselves, wondering, what does being raised from the dead mean? What's he talking about? You know, they it just kind of, they kind of just miss that. And, you know, they don't have the spiritual understanding, the spiritual eyes 
to see it at that point. Um, but you know, we can understand them. We've, you know, I got, I still got a lot more clarifying to <laughs> get to. Uh, although I know where to look, it's a good thing. So Jesus tells Peter, this is what he tells him, he's mindful of the things of men, not the things of God. I saw a couple of weeks ago that we're to, if we're risen with Christ, we're to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. And so Peter is minding earthly things. Men are all about seeking pleasure and avoiding trouble. That is, avoiding trouble for you, not necessarily for me. I might cause you trouble. But I don't want to have trouble. God is not about avoiding trouble for you and I. He has larger concerns about which our trouble or lack thereof is, a very, is very small in significance. They are blips on the radar compared to what God is bringing about and what he is to accomplish. We see this in Romans 8, uh, verse 18, where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, however great they might be, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He speaks to the Corinthians and he says that, that these trials are uh, earning for us this great weight of glory. He, said, he calls them light afflictions. And if you read about what Paul went through physically, he's looking upon those things as light afflictions. And he says... But there is an eternal weight of glory that is being stored up for us in the heavens. So he says here to the Romans, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, bringing many sons to glory. Once again, that's what he's talking about. And you can read further there and he talks about the restoration of the creation from the curse and the deliverance of the creation into the liberty of the sons of God. 